The text before us is quite clear. There's nothing quite as distasteful as hypocrisy. Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy of these scribes who love to, and this is embarrassing to point out, parade around in their robes and stoles, who love to look for the best seats in church or maybe at the football game, who love to use their power and their prestige to get what they want. And he says to his, to his disciples and essentially to the church, don't be like this. Don't, don't let these scribes sway you with the way they behave. They are hypocrites. There's, there's probably nothing more distasteful in this life. Is there than a hypocrite? And, and by the way, when you see scribe, if you want to just want to cross that out and write preachers, that would be more than appropriate to do so. They were legal experts. They were theological experts. They understood the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. And they knew, they knew that the preference of God throughout the teachings of their own Hebrew Bible was that God's preference is always for the poor. That is the widow, the refugee, the immigrant, the outsider. And yet they were stepping on the backs of those to line their own pockets and to become more powerful. But we need to be clear. Hypocrisy is not limited just to, just to preachers, just to theologians and religious leaders. No, hypocrisy is an issue that we face in our culture in a variety of places. Politicians and plumbers, teachers and electricians, moms and dads, lawyers and doctors, dogs and cats, it's a long list. <laughs> Hypocrisy is an issue that we, we, face, we face in this world. What Jesus wants us to hear, most specifically what Mark wants us to understand as he writes this gospel, is that this is a word spoken to the church. Anytime you see in Mark's gospel a phrase that says, uh, and then he said to his disciples, that's Mark's way of saying, if you're a part of a church, sit up and pay attention because this is something that the church needs to look at and understand. You see, Mark's gospel was written at least 20 years after uh, the life of Christ, maybe as many as 30 or 40 or even 50 years later. The scholars argue about all that. But regardless of how long it was, it was quite a bit of time. And so naturally a church has formed, communities of faith have formed around the teachings of Jesus. They're gathering all around the, the, the Israel and Jerusalem especially. And now there are, as is always in almost any human institution, problems arising. And so Mark is saying to his church, remember what Jesus said? Do you remember what he said when he saw the scribes? Do you realize what that was about? Can we pay, pay attention to this also our, ourselves? <clears throat> Essentially, what, what Mark wants them to do is follow in the ways of Jesus, to follow in his teaching, to allow his teaching to guide them in everything they say and do. Yesterday, I met here at the church at 1320 Cambridge with a number of folks who are very interested in becoming members of our church. I believe there will be 15 or more in the month of December who will, will join our, our congregation. I went through the history of our, of our great church and I told them about the time when Oliver Wiest was the pastor here. Our church was under quite a bit of criticism. Did you know this? About 100 years or so ago, our church was being criticized by other churches in the Columbus area. We were criticized for not being very spiritual for being less than perfect Christians, for not being the kind of people that, that we ought to be. Now, uh, Pastor Wiest uh, took umbrage with this. He was not happy about that. He let people know, here's who we are at First Community Church. We haven't lowered the bar. We actually think we've raised it. We want to follow in the teachings of Jesus. We want his ways to be our ways. And in fact, he even says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he even says at the end of this statement, the only requirement, the only requirement to be a disciple is to follow Jesus. 
Do you hear that? I want you to hear the clarity of that. You may be full of doubt. You may be full of, full of faith. You may wonder about whether or not God exists. You may be absolutely certain that God is real and God's spirit pervades everything in this world. You may have a ton of questions. You may know all the answers. But the true question for those who claim to be disciples is this. Are we following Jesus? Are his teachings guiding us in the way we live and interact with each other? You know, anytime I encounter this text, I always think about this story about a preacher who went to a cocktail party. You know, cocktail parties, by the way, are very dangerous places for preachers. Not just because if you have one or two or three drinks, you might be talking too much or saying things that are inappropriate or just embarrassing yourself in public. That's one issue. The deeper issue that, fear, that frightens most of us is when somebody else at the party maybe has had one or two many drinks and they decide to come over and talk to the preacher and explain some things to her or to him. Well, this one particular preacher was at a party and sure enough, somebody had a little bit too much to drink. And so he, he came up to the preacher and said, preacher, I gotta tell you something. You know why I don't go to your church? You know why I don't go to any church? Uh, no, I, I don't, tell me, would you please? I don't go because there's too many hypocrites. And the preacher didn't miss a beat. He said, well, that's probably true, but I want you to know we have room for one more. Now we laugh at that joke, and I, I probably shouldn't tell that joke. I like that story, it makes people laugh, feels kind of good. I'm not trying to put anybody down, of course. But it, it really names the issue, doesn't it? The, the, the issue of hypocrisy is something that, that affects our country. And let's be, let's be frank, anytime a preacher or a politician or an educator, a lawyer, doctor, whoever it might be, makes an issue about themselves and about who they are and what they want in particular, the issue of hypocrisy is going to raise its head every single time. And before we move on, I want to say one more thing. I want us to be very clear about something. Jesus is attacking this particular group of scribes, not all scribes in general in Judaism, but this particular group before him who have learned how to get rich on the backs of the poor. He's challenging them with their own teachings, making them pay attention. I say this because oftentimes, Texts like this in the Bible have been used for hundreds, indeed thousands of years to create a sort of anti-Semitic fervor. To say, oh, look, look at how the Jews are behaving so poorly here. Thank God Jesus came along and fixed them. No, no, and no. Can I be clear enough? No. Jesus was a Jew. He came to help his brothers and sisters in that great faith understand what was central to them and their teaching. He was not calling out Judaism. He was calling out the hypocrisy of someone who claims one thing and lives another way. This problem is not only true for, for Jews and Christians, it's true for Buddhists and Hindus, anyone who says they live in a particular way and want to, and then act completely opposite of that particular statement. In fact, I want you to know, throughout the Bible, the so-called wrath of God is almost always reserved for the super-religious, super-self-righteous people who think they are above all of the rest. That's where God's wrath, God's anger, God's, God's fear is directed toward those who think they don't matter, who think they can live however they want to. So let us be clear. This is a word to all of us, especially to the church, to pay attention to our own teachings. Well, back to the text. I, I'm, I'm very embarrassed to, to acknowledge how many times in my own ministry I've been caught up in my own super-religious, super, -religious, super hypocrisy and the way it has tripped me up 
too many times. I remember one example in particular when I was a youth minister. We formed a youth council. We decided that the youth council made up of about five adults and five youth would create a youth newsletter. We'd mail it out to all the members of the youth group in, in the middle school and high school age. And I, in fact, I formed a little team of, of young people who would be the ones who would write most of the materials for this four-page uh, uh, newsletter that we'd mail out to, to everybody. A couple of months into it, we were really having fun and designing some different things, and I decided I decided to show off my Hebrew language skills. The curriculum for that month was peace, and so I designed using some Hebrew letter uh, graphics to put at the top of the newsletter the word in Hebrew, shalom. I wanted everybody in the church, at least in my youth group, to know I took Hebrew and I got a good grade. Can you see this? Isn't that great? And then the rest of the article was about the peace curriculum that the kids were studying, how to bring peace in the world, peace into your own personal life, that sort of thing. Well. Uh, how many kids do you think responded by that? How many, how many comments do you think I got about, wow, the Hebrew is really cool? You're right, none, zero. No one really cared. Sunday comes though, we got a big crowd coming for youth group and Jennifer, who's the editor of the youth newsletter, she's brought her friend to youth group that night. Her friend happens to be Jewish, but of course she's welcomed and she's brought in and she's received well and she has a great time. I can see that she's interacted with other kids. She knows some of them from school and, and it goes well. And in fact, she comes up to me afterwards and and stops by and says, hey, I just want to let you know I had a great time. I really like your church. May I come back? And I said, of course you can. And then I picked up a newsletter and said, by the way, won't you take one of these newsletters? And she said, oh, good, thanks. And she started to walk away. Then she stopped and she turned around with no malice in her voice. She just said, by the way, you spelled shalom wrong. <laughs> yeah. I spelled shalom wrong. It's kind of a silly example. I know it is. But how often? has our own desire for attention, for acclaim, tripped us up and caused us to behave in foolish and dumb ways. Try to make it about ourselves, and the next thing you know, our own hypocrisy is on display. I've seen it from the other side too, though. I've seen it when the church behaves poorly. In December of my eighth grade year, my father was serving a church in Los Angeles. He was fired, called into the governing board on December 15th, handed his final paycheck. That paycheck paid him up through that day. No severance, no bag of groceries, nothing. Now, I've talked about some of my dad's issues in the past. I can imagine why he might have been fired on that day, but I was the oldest of four children. I was eighth grade. There were, there were three other kids at home my mom was employed as a school teacher in that church. My dad's income, though, was the primary income. Two weeks later, on the day before the Christmas break was to begin, my mom, a kindergarten teacher in that church's private school, was called into the principal's office. Now, you need to know about my mom. She was a marvelous educator. If you visited her king, kindergarten class, you would just feel like you were in, in the female version of Mrs., uh, Mrs., Mr. Rogers. It was love and grace and acceptance and education, all kinds of wonderfulness. And later on, she became like, like Leanne Easterling, the, the director of a preschool, and did great work with the preschool that she directed. In fact, she directed two different preschools in, in her career. Her, her, her reviews as a teacher were always the highest of the highest of the high. And she's called into the principal's office at this church where my father had been fired not long before. And she was told, you will not come back after the Christmas break is over and was handed her final paycheck up through that day. My mom said, I, I don't understand. 
what did I do wrong? The principal said, we just thought it would be uncomfortable for you to come back. We survived for nine months on welfare and food stamps. If you want to hear some personal stories about what it's like to stand in line and hear the comments that are made by the people behind you at the grocery store and the clerk on the other side of the counter, when your mother is buying food stamps and trying to take care of the family, talk to me afterwards and I can tell you some personal experiences. Thank God for that safety net for the, from the United States of America. Otherwise, my family would have been homeless and hungry for weeks. It was nine months before my dad finally secured another position and we were able to move forward. You see, to make his point as clear as possible to the disciples and, and to us then, Jesus says, you see the hypocrisy of these folks, of these leaders of their religion? Do you see the way they're behaving? Now look, look at this widow, this poor widow. Here are all these wealthy people placing large amounts in the treasury, and yet she has given all that she has. She's given her entire self. Now, I want to note something here. In the text, as you heard it read this morning, Rich people weren't being put down. The comment is neutral. It's not a negative or a positive. It's just a report of a fact. There were wealthy people who were bringing in large sums. Amen, thank you very much. Thank you letters will be in the, in, in the mail. There's nothing negative being said here at all about that. What Jesus wants us to see is this woman who has nothing, this widow, poor, on the edge of, of, of death perhaps even. She gives her all. Have you seen that before? Have you seen? I know in this church we have, there are people who give their lives and time and hours to, to our heart-to-heart -heart ministry to feed the hungry. There are people who do all kinds of work on our, on our various task forces to bring a, a better community here to the Columbus area who indeed have served around the world. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've all got your stories. I'm sure we do. It's amazing what happens when people give their whole selves. I remember one time, in the very first capital campaign I ever led was at Sandy Springs Christian Church in, in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a little $1.1 million campaign. I say little, it was huge for that church, but it was going really well. We were about two-thirds way through it. We'd raised most of the money that we needed, and we felt very positive that we were going to be able to do the work that was, was planned. And then I got a call from a couple named William and Jane. William was the one who called me. He said, Glenn, uh, Jane and I have some concerns about the campaign. Maybe we come and talk to you. I said, sure, that, that'd be fine. We made an appointment. I was fairly certain they were going to come in and complain and exercise their right, of course, to express their concerns. Well, they came into my office on the day of the appointment, and they were smiling and laughing and giddy and just kind of, you could just tell they were full of energy. And I thought, this is going to be the strangest complaint session I've ever had. They sat down on my couch. They said, we, we want to get right to it, Glenn. We want to let you know. Here's the thing. When this campaign started, we were depressed. As you may or may not know, we live on limited incomes. Both of us lost our pensions. We've got a home, we've got a car, we, we, we get enough food to eat, we're doing fine, but we give as much as we possibly can to the operating, and we didn't want to reduce our gift to the church and the operating in order to give to the capital, and we just have been so worried and so full, that we, full of fear that we couldn't fully participate in the work of our church that we love so much. And we, but we finally came up with an idea, and he said, Jane, tell Glenn your idea. And Jane then began to speak, and she said, we decided for the three years of this campaign, we would give up coffee. We think we spend about $30 a month, so we multiplied that by one year. That's $360 times three is $1,080. We rounded up to $1,100. She reached into her purse, and she handed me a pledge card for $1,100. They were laughing and crying at the same time. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Now, do you realize what, what they did? did? Did you notice what they did? They gave up coffee. 
Now, maybe that's not their whole lives. Maybe that's not everything. But what a beautiful thing it is when we're inspired to give of our whole self selves. This widow gives her all, is doing more than trying to survive. She is putting her entire life in God's hands. She's saying, God, I trust you. I love you. I will depend on you and your love and the community of faith to care for me. It's a beautiful witness. In fact, it's even a living parable, a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do at the cross when he gives his whole life his whole self. I remember when my grandfather died, I flew out to California to lead the funeral service for him. Afterwards, we went to my grandparents' condominium where my grandmother had fried chicken and potato salad and apple pie and all of that. There were about 20 or 30 people there for this post-funeral meal. And I noticed Grandma was not smiling or interacting, so I went over and put my arm around her and said, Grandma, are you okay? And she turned and looked at me, and there was a, there was a hard look on her face. She said, Glenn, I, I miss him so. I said, well, Grandma, you had 63 years. Wasn't that, isn't that amazing? And her expression didn't change. It was still hard. She said, it wasn't enough. I miss my Robbie. I miss him so. Well, a few months later, I called her. I called her about once a month. I remember one time calling her a few months, and I said, Grandma, how are you doing? She said, I, I'm really lonely. I wish I had a church that I could serve and attend and be a part of. She was on a walker. She, her hips had been, one of her hips had been broken. She hadn't really recovered from it fully. She needed help, not just from the walker, but from somebody on either side to kind of help her move forward. And she said, I just can't go to church. I feel like I'd be a burden on people there. And I said, Grandma, do you pray for me? She said, Honey, when your grandmother calls you honey, you know your day's been blessed. She said, Honey, I, I pray for you every day. I said, do you pray for my mom, your daughter? I do. Could you add her church to your list? Silence. Well, of course I could. What about their pastor? He's a friend of mine. He's a good guy. Could you pray for him? I, I could. I said, Grandma, why don't, why don't you join that church? Oh, Glenn, I, I couldn't do that. I don't have any money. I'm, things are tied. It's really hard. I said, Grandma, you give what you can. A week later, she came down the center aisle of that church on that walker, my mom on one side, a friend on the other, and she formally put her membership in that congregation. She gave all that she had to give, not out of her abundance, but out of her love for the work of that church and the work that God's love is doing in the world. It's amazing what can happen when the church can stand together as one church and give itself to each other to its neighbors, and to all. But I'll, I'll let you know, I am worried. In fact, there's some worry, not only in this congregation, but in congregations around the country and, and indeed around the world. It used to be that the church was at the center of the public square. It used to be that our voice mattered, that they would, the mayor would call the, the minister at the church and say, tell us what you think we ought to do. And that sort of thing used to happen. It doesn't happen nearly as much anymore. And it just feels like we've been pushed off to the sideline and, and marginalized. And we, well, we blame soccer schedules and baseball schedules and softball and football and all that sort of thing. I'm not opposed to rec sports. I coach rec sports, but we sort of get caught up in saying these things they need to change, they need to be different, etc. But I wonder, a few months ago, Julie and I were off on a weekend, and so we went to church over at First Congregational Church downtown. My buddy Tim Ahrens is the pastor there. He's a good preacher, a good guy. Heard a good sermon that morning. Don't go there, but I heard a good sermon. It was good. 
after it was over, I got a big hug, hug from Tim, and then Julie and I said, let's go get some brunch, and we went out to the mall at Polaris and had a nice meal and walked around, and I got depressed. The mall was jam-packed. Moms and dads, their kids weren't playing soccer, they just weren't in church, and I wondered, really? What do we, what do we need to do? And then it just came to me out of nowhere. I remembered something my hero, Fred Craddock, the great preacher who's now in the resurrection, something he said, the question for the church is not, are we going to die? But rather, what are we willing to give our lives for? What are we willing to give our church for? What are we willing to stand together with and give our church toward? That's the question. It's not about how do we survive, it's about how do we thrive by giving away all that we have and all that we are in the name of love. But it's not just the church. What about you? What about your life? What, what do you have to give? Time? Talent? Money? Prayer? Something else? All of those gifts are valuable and needed. But here's the thing. Do you know what God wants? Do you, want, you know what God wants more than anything else? God wants you. Nothing more nothing less. Amen.